Father, as we come to this moment in our worship service, just as, as Jason has already prayed, Lord, just as we sung, Lord, would you build our lives upon your love and upon your word? God, your word that is faithful and true and trustworthy. Lord, your word that is perfect, that is inspired, that has been passed down for generations upon generations, that has been preserved for thousands upon thousands of years, just so that we might continue to glean from this word by the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know, as I say many times, Lord, but I mean it every time, Father, I know and I acknowledge that I am both unworthy and unable to the task at hand. Father, I ask that you would speak in spite of me, that, Father, your spirit would move and work among us, Father, that we might be comforted for those of us who need comfort, that we might be strengthened and encouraged for those who need strength and encouragement. Lord, but also as we read this, that you would cut us and pierce us to our very hearts. You would convict us of the wrongdoings that we have done, Lord. That you would make us aware of our blind spots, Lord. That you would make me aware of my blind spots, Father, of the places that I am living in sin and I don't even acknowledge it within my own heart, Father. Please move among us to convict us and to challenge us Conform our hearts, transform us by the renewal of our minds as we look to your holy and perfect word. Would you preach to all of us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you add your blessing to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of your holy word? We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Wherever you are, wherever you may be, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, whether that be a, a book with pages, a bound book with pages, or as I am often made fun of for saying, a paginated text, or whether you're using your phone or a tablet, or whether you just want to follow along on the screens, we are going to be in the book of Exodus once again. We'll be in Exodus this week. We will read Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you're starting off from the very beginning of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it, you go to Genesis. That's the beginning. That's what Genesis means, is beginning. And then you go to the very next book, Exodus, and we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. As you find your place in sacred scripture, I would ask if you're physically able, regardless of where you may be, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's Holy Word. As we look together at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I will read aloud for us. When I have finished reading, I will say, This is the Word of the Lord, and I encourage you to respond by saying, Thanks be to God. Let's look together now at Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Word of the Lord says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And her sister and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We come to this place this morning in Exodus chapter 2 from Exodus chapter 1. We spent two weeks ago looking at the actual build up in Genesis up to the book of Exodus. We talked about how in the book of Genesis we have Joseph going down into the land of Egypt as a, as a slave and then as a prisoner only to be raised up and, and lifted to be second in command only under Pharaoh. There was nobody else more powerful in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh. Joseph was the number two man all across the land. And he went through years and years, over decade of suffering. And yet the Lord allowed all of those things so that he could deliver not only Egypt, but also Joseph's family. And in fact, we learned the entire world. But we read in chapter 1 how forgetful and how quickly people forget what has happened. You, you, you may be familiar with this phrase. Man, I really appreciate what you did for me last year. I really appreciate what you did for me last month. I really appreciate what you did for me last week. But what have you done for me today? Bosses commonly say this to their employers. This is a a regular phrase. We are a forgetful people. And we're told in chapter one that a new Pharaoh arose who did not remember how God preserved and blessed the nation of Egypt through Joseph. The, The reason that they owed so much to Joseph that we didn't have a lot of time to talk about was also because in the midst of divvying out the food, the government really overstepped and they really overreached in their purview and they took land from the Egyptians. The Egyptians had to sell their land to the government in order to have enough money to buy the food. So it wasn't just that Joseph had set up the means for their survival, but Joseph set up the means for them to create an empire. It was a loosely connected collection of provinces, but after this famine, after what Joseph does, there is an empire, there is a solid state that Pharaoh is now the greatest landowner in all of Egypt. But there arose a Pharaoh who forgot that he owed all of that to the Israelites. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of enslavement, God blesses them with numerous children. 
You have to remember, we talked about last week, having children was a blessing. There was no financial burden to having children. It was actually a blessing and a financial blessing to have children in the ancient times. The more children you had, the the more you could have work and labor and have support when you were older. It was all a good thing. So God blessed them over and over again abundantly, so much so that Pharaoh became increasingly afraid of the Israelites. To the point that he said, if somebody were to wage war against us, the Israelites might join them and us be overthrown. Instead of building and developing this relationship, he acted out of fear. And began to enslave the people. And in the midst of that slavery, God was still present and God was still blessing them. We talked about the midwives. Pharaoh calls in the midwives and tells them that if there is a boy that is born, that boy should be put to death. The midwives refuse to obey Pharaoh's command. And God blesses them because they feared God more than Pharaoh. And then we learn at the end of chapter 1 the atrocities that Pharaoh begins to carry out. Pharaoh says, I'll send my troops and any boy, any male Hebrew that is a toddler or younger will be taken and thrown into the Nile. That's the context in which chapter two begins. And we are introduced to the the primary character aside from God Almighty. The main protagonist in the story is going to be Moses. And in the midst of this terrible tragedy, in the midst of Children being thrown in the river. As grotesque as it is, that's what's happening. They are literally just taking kids and throwing them in the river. And this is not one of those interesting YouTube videos where people are teaching, you know, infants and babies to float and like lay on their back. And that way, if your child falls into the pool, they'll be safe. We're not talking about that kind of a video where these kids just gently floated down the river and they were fine. These kids tragically drowned and and suffocated to death underwater it's awful and it's horrid and these mothers had their babies ripped from them at knife point at spear point at sword point by weapons being placed against them i'm sure there were some mothers we don't get details but i'm sure there were some mothers that said if you're going to take my child you have to kill me too and the soldiers probably did not hesitate a moment and both the child and the mother were instantly killed And so we see an act of selflessness similar to that in Moses' mother. Moses' mother says, I don't care what Pharaoh has said. When she sees this baby boy, she says, I will not give him up. I will not submit to what Pharaoh has said. And if I do, the boy is certainly dead. But if I'm able to hide him, maybe the boy lives. If we're found out, the boy would have died anyway. And then I will die with my son. And that is just fine with me. This is a mother's act of selfless love. This is self-sacrificial love. And this is the kind of love that most of us, I would, I would venture to say a majority of people experience from their mothers. Now, given there are mothers out there who do not care for their children, there are mothers out there in extenuating circumstances that I don't know. I am not condemning those mothers, but I am saying the example that we see in Scripture is a mother that was willing to put her life on the line for the sake of her child. It did not matter to her whether she was killed or executed. It did not matter to her. All that mattered is that her son had a chance at life. 
If she hides him, he'll have at least a chance. And so we we see an introspective look at this mother who is so bold as to hide her son from Pharaoh and his army. And then it begins to to break out more of the details of, of how Moses doesn't die. And so this section actually begins to break down uh, verses two, verses one through ten of chapter two are going to tell us about Moses as an infant, and then it's going to jump very quickly to Moses, probably in his early early forties, maybe late thirties. So we're going to cover a lot of ground in chapter two, and so next week we'll look at what happens as Moses is an older man and has grown up and has survived, and there's key elements there. Really, as we continue through the book of Exodus, there's three main phases. There's, there's three main stages of Moses' life. Moses lives to be about 120 years old, and it breaks down quite nicely into roughly 40-year periods. And so here in chapter 2, we begin the period of, of zero, of, of the time that he's born, and we'll depart from this section at the end of chapter 2 when Moses is about 40. Then there's a section where he's in the wilderness and he's he's living with Jethro or, or Rule. What, what, both names are, are used there in Scripture. He marries Zipporah, has some children. That's going to take place for about 40 years. Then he's going to come back at the end of that time frame and, and the plagues and all that will take place there. The, the lifespan of Moses really does break up the book of Exodus for us. So here we are in the beginning learning of the infancy. And so we, we learn that when Moses was born, you look there in verse 2. His mother notices that he was a fine child. Now, listen, there are plenty of jokes to be made. The connotation here is, let me tell you what, Moses was born, and I looked at that boy, and boy, he was fine. That was a fine young man. It, it probably wasn't, wasn't meant like that, okay? Really, what's very interesting here is the way that the Hebrew is worded. You could literally say, she saw him and saw that he was good. The wording here is very interesting because that's the exact same wording we see at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Everything that God makes, he looks at and he sees that it was good. All of creation, as he creates it, is good. The first time we run into something that's not good in the creation account is when God sees that Adam is alone. And he sees that Adam being alone is not good. But here... Almost in another Genesis, in a a new beginning, in the development and the freedom and the formation of God's people as a nation, we have a new beginning. And this this point person is born and God sees him, his mother sees him and sees that he was good. It's the same Hebrew phrasing. This is supposed to harken back to Genesis 1 and 2. So yes, he was fine. Yes, he was healthy, but she saw him and saw that he was good. As, as you work through this, this account in verses, in verse three and following, there's several terms that you run into that are borrowed from Egyptian terminology. So all of this is, is some of these things the Hebrews didn't even have word for. Like when we see in verse three, uh, it's bulrushes and reeds and, and they painted it with, with bitumen and, and pitch. That's kind of a tar-like substance. This is the same kind of substance that Noah probably would have painted the bottom of the ark with. And the same word that is used for basket, the basket that, that Moses is placed in, is the same word that is used for ark in Genesis chapter 6. Noah goes into an ark that they also use that same word for 
basket. So they use some Egyptian descriptors here to let us know it's not a big ark. It's not made of gopher wood. It's made from the reeds and the bulrushes around. And so they make it to where it's waterproof. They make it to where it will float. And then they set it off down the river. And Moses' sister makes a choice very similar to the mother's choice. The mother got to a place where she knew the best chance that Moses had of survival was to put him in the basket and send him down the river. It got to a point where she could no longer hide Moses. And if Moses stayed in her house, both her and Moses' death was certain. And so she comes to a place where she says the only option is to put Moses in this basket. Now, the sister is a wonderful big sister. I, I don't know about you guys, but I have a big sister like this. My sister Neely is nine years older than me, and growing up, she was like another mother to me in many, many ways. She took me places. She was my chauffeur. She watched over me. She included me in things. She really invested in me in self-sacrificial ways, and now she is that same kind of mother to my nephew and to my niece. The kind of mother that Moses' sister probably becomes. Moses' sister casts her life aside and follows the basket. It's the same thing that we see when Peter is following after Jesus and he gets associated with Jesus just by being close to him. Wait, your accent, aren't you from Galilee? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? If Moses' sister had been found this close to Moses in the basket, they would have said, who are you and what do you know of this basket? How are you connected to this boy? Why are you watching over this basket? But his sister did not care anything for her own safety, for her own security. Much like her mother, she followed Moses to see what would happen. And then she even goes a step further. In verses 7 through 9 there, when, Pharaoh, when Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses... And is there looking at the baby, this Hebrew slave, you have to understand a young woman, Hebrew slave. This is the lowest status in society at this time. She is female. She's a young female and she's part of the Hebrews, which means she's a slave. She is so presumptuous as to speak to Pharaoh's daughter without Pharaoh's daughter speaking to her first. Just by and large, across the board, the Hebrews should not have spoken to the Egyptians. The Israelites should not have addressed the Egyptians unless the Egyptians initiated the conversation. And yet, not only is that the rule for the men who are of the highest stature in the Hebrew society, it's especially, doubly, triply true for this young woman who is so bold as to speak to Pharaoh's daughter and say, hey, would you like for me to go find somebody to nurse that baby for you? Listen, to us, that, that might seem like just kind, polite, normal, gentle ways of being kind and compassionate, considerate to one another. This is just her being nice. She took her life into her own hands to speak to Pharaoh's daughter so that she might arrange for Moses' health and survival, but also this special extra blessing for Moses' mother. Folks, this is very similar to what we see in the story of Esther. 
After the order is given and Mordecai becomes aware that all the Jews, Haman has orchestrated it so that the king sends out a decree that all the Jews should be killed. And Mordecai sends word to Esther and says, you have to say something to the king. If you don't say something to the king, all the Jews will be killed. And Esther says, if I go before the king and the king has not called me, the king can have me beheaded just like that. And the king hasn't called for me in over a month. And yet, she says, pray for me and fast. And then she says, I will go. And she goes before the king, knowing that she takes her life in her own hands. If King Xerxes does not take out the golden scepter and point it right at Esther, then she is taken away immediately. The, the, the mental image you need here is of somebody approaching the president, regardless of what president it is, President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, it, it, whichever president, somebody rushing forward to the president, Secret Service is going to tackle them and take them down immediately. It's the same thing in King Xerxes' presence. Even for his wives, the guards would have immediately stepped in and stopped her from getting too close to the king because the king hadn't called for her. And unless he points then they immediately take her around the arms and escort her out the room to be beheaded and killed. In the same way, all of Pharaoh's daughters, young women, are part of her protection. They are her young women. They are to minister to her needs and be her servants. But it's also their job to stop random people from just coming up to her. And the the women, the young women, the servants, the maidens, were on the side of the riverbank near where Moses' sister was. All they had to do was tackle her, take her down, and then get her off to one of the guards. And yet Moses' sister is so presumptuous as to speak and say, Can I get a nurse for you to nurse the child? Notice that Pharaoh's daughter hasn't said anything yet about whether she will keep the child or not. It's almost as if even as Moses' sister says this, she's suggesting to Pharaoh's daughter, Well, you're definitely going to keep him, right? I mean, you... You can't just cast him aside. You, you've seen this this healthy, good-looking baby boy, and, and he's crying, and he's upset. He needs somebody to soothe him. And listen, folks, if you're an adult, Pharaoh's daughter, is easy. it's easy for her to recognize that Moses is a Hebrew because there was a particular uh, ceremony that took place among the Hebrews after eight days of, of the child being alive that more than likely did happen to Moses. So that when she saw Moses and his naked body, she recognized there was something distinctly Jewish about him almost immediately. And that's as detailed as we're going to get about that. So the woman, the sister, speaks to Pharaoh and says, well, you, I know he's a Hebrew, but you're going to keep him, right? I mean, he, look at the baby. Look at him. Don't, don't you need somebody to nurse this baby? And remember, they didn't have formula. They, they didn't have any way of feeding a baby except by nursing. And so there were always maidens and servants who had given birth to children who that was their job was to nurse babies. So it's a very normal and natural request. And then God provides in this astounding way that, that couldn't have even been dreamed up by Moses's mother. She puts Moses in that basket knowing that his life is in God's hands now. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll never nurse my baby again. I'll never see my baby again. What does Pharaoh's daughter reply? She says, go. One simple word, go. And so Moses' sister, 
takes her baby brother and goes back to her mother and says, Mama, you'll never believe what happened. You'll never believe how good God has been. We gave Moses over for the Lord to deliver or do with whatever he wanted to do. And this is how God has shown up and delivered. Pharaoh had said that Moses' life was forfeit. Pharaoh had said that all the male children in Egypt who were Israelites had to be killed. But God had different plans. You see... Everything about Joseph's story still ties in. Pharaoh had an evil intention, but God had deliverance for the Israelites in their midst being delivered through the deliverance of one baby. And his life will progress and lead to the deliverance of all of these people and the the birth of this nation in and of itself. All because one mother was willing to. To love her child sacrificially. And then to give her child back up to the Lord. It's incredible that, that when, Moses, when, when, the, when the, Moses comes back to Pharaoh's daughter, she names him Moses. And it's, it's awesome. This word in, in Hebrew is masha, which means to draw out. So Moses' name is a play on the Hebrew word for drawing out of the water. But the name is also related to the common Egyptian word for son. Moses is a real person. These events really happened. And his name is so perfect because Pharaoh's daughter says, you will be my son. And so his name reflects the Egyptian word for son. And she drew him out. And that reflects that she pulled him out of the water. But as we're going to see through the rest of the story of Exodus, Israel is going to be God's son. And God is going to draw Israel out of Egypt. Even in Moses' name, there is symbolism and foreshadowing to everything else that's going to happen in his life and with the nation of Israel. We're going to see this theme and this motif come back up as God is going to say, Pharaoh has killed and struggled against and enslaved my son. Talking of the people of Israel. And so the final plague, God takes the firstborn son of all the people of Egypt. This is symbolized even in what Moses was named. It's all right there for us to see and to experience. But listen, folks, the the crux of all of this, the the heart of all of this, is the self-sacrificial love of Moses's. Mother and Moses' sister. It's so appropriate that today is Mother's Day and this is the story that we are in because whether you had a wonderful mom or whether you had somebody be a stand-in mom for you, I think it's safe to say that none of us would be where we are today without somebody coming along and loving us sacrificially. And you know, especially in these times especially now, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of this crisis, we are being pushed by the world to be self-preserving. Our, our temptation is, i got to take care of me, and i got to take care of mine. And while the world pushes us towards self-preservation, the gospel is pushing us towards self-sacrifice. 
The gospel pushes us to self-sacrificial love. And you might think, Pastor, where are you getting that from? Folks, Jesus says it in every single gospel. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, not preserve himself, not preserve herself, deny himself or herself, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor them. Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve The specific Greek word is translated, preserve his life, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will keep it. Mark 8.35, whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Folks, the gospel calls us not to focus on self-preservation. The gospel calls us to be active in self-sacrificial love that might even cost us our lives. And this is a tough pill for me to swallow. But I want to share a story with you. Just bear with me just a moment. This is a story that the Southern Baptist president, J.D. Greer, shared several weeks back. And I looked up some of the things that that he he talked about. And all of these things, you can fact check it. You can go to Snopes or whatever you want to do. This is all true and accurate information. Historically, we know that the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, is at its best in times like this pandemic. The power of the gospel really begins to shine through now. This is an extraordinary gospel moment. Historian Rodney Stark describes how God used a moment just like this in the early days of the church to expand the gospel in overwhelmingly powerful ways. So the year was A.D. 250. So it's about 250 years after Jesus has died and an enormous plague strikes the Roman Empire. This plague killed on an average 5,000 people every day within the Roman Empire. A plague in 250. Plagues are not new. This kind of death is not new. And in the early days of Christianity, in AD 250, there's a plague killing 5,000 people in the Roman Empire every day. At this time, Christians were less than 2%, less than 2% of the entire population. Their numbers, Christians' numbers were growing, but statistically speaking, they were fairly insignificant. Despite those low numbers, Christians' response to this pandemic won admiration and a greater following. The Bishop of Corinth at the time reported that most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death 
to themselves and died in their stead. Outside the church, the situation was extremely different. This same church bishop, Dionysius, says, but with the non-Christians, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick. They fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death, which yet with all their precautions, it was not easy for them to escape. And in spite of all this, the irony of the story is that the death rate among Christians in most of these areas of plague was lower than that of those who simply fled. And in some cases, by half. Now, we're not talking just the 2% versus raw numbers. We're talking percentage-wise. There were oftentimes half the number of Christians percentage-wise, dying, who were running to the sick. And in the process, the gospel grew exponentially. Because people saw who they thought were their friends. They saw who they thought loved them run from them in this plague. And they saw Christians run to them. Oftentimes, causing their own death. Folks, I struggle with this. I wrestle with this. But if we believe God, if we believe the gospel, it's not about preserving our lives. It's not about doing everything I can to make sure that I survive. It's about losing my life for the sake of the gospel growing even to one more person. I'm not... I'm not calling for us to all go lick somebody that has COVID-19, okay? I'm not calling for us to be stupid. We have to be wise. But our focus can't be on self-preservation. This Mother's Day, we as Christians need to emulate the mothers in our lives that have loved us sacrificially. We have to emulate those who have been sacrificial in their love for us, primarily Jesus Christ. He counted the glory. Philippians tells us he counted the glory and the majesty of being one with the Father as nothing. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant that we might be delivered. He gave his life that we might have life. That's the example we are to follow. But it's it's a tough call. And it, it calls for us to have incredible faith Knowing that God will deliver and work in powerful ways, even to grow the gospel, even to grow the kingdom through the pandemic. But that happens with us as the vehicles. We are the ambassadors of Christ. He is making his appeal to the world through us. He doesn't need us. His word can do that on his own, like Jake told us Wednesday night. But he gives us that blessing. To have the opportunity to be the ambassadors. To be the ones through whom God makes His appeal. And the best way to appeal to the world during this time frame is through self-sacrificial love. I'm going to close. But I just, I can't close without pointing our attention to what Exodus is really about. You see, all all the Israelites for the longest time thought that the story of Moses was just about Moses, was just about God forming a new nation. But there's so much more than that. 
The story of Moses points us to the prophet Moses told us would come in Deuteronomy. To the one who was better than, greater than, more perfect than Moses. Moses' mother, Moses' sister could ever have dreamed of being. And he went through some of the same experiences that Moses had. Look with me in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The word of the Lord says, Now when they had departed, they being the Magi, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son Hosea one one is that quotation out of Egypt. I called my son again the nuance to Moses's name even in Hosea. But now looking at Christ then Herod in verse 16 when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Folks, this really happened. Herod ordered the death of all of those male babies the same way that Pharaoh ordered the death of all those male babies. Moses was delivered up out of Egypt the same way that Jesus was delivered up out of Egypt. God put huge road signs all over Scripture to show us and point to us out that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and that no man comes to the Father, no person receives salvation except through Jesus, who is the greater Moses. Jesus is everything that we need. Jesus is our all-sufficient sacrifice. His life, His death, His resurrection is all that we need for life eternal and everlasting. Even if there's a meat shortage, Jesus is enough. Even if you come down with COVID-19, Jesus is enough. Even if all of our temptation is to preserve our own life, if we seek to lose our life and run with self-sacrificial love to those those in need, Jesus will be enough. And those who lose their lives for the sake of the gospel will gain life eternal. And everything in the Bible points us to this one Messiah who saves us, delivers us in every way, gives us freedom. So folks, don't miss that the story of Exodus is really a story about Jesus. He's really the primary protagonist in all the story. Because we're going to see in every way, every step along, how Jesus is far greater than Moses. And if for some reason you've stayed with us this long, I know I've run long this morning and that wasn't my aim, but if you stayed with us this long and you don't know Christ, please know there is no other way to have eternal life than through Him. 
comment on Facebook or, or, or YouTube. Email us, office at Bethany Andalusia. Call the church. Let us know that you don't know Jesus. Let us know how we can love you sacrificially and we will show you the love Jesus has shown us at Bethany so that you might know that there is hope, but there is hope only in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to exhibit the kind of sacrificial love that you showed us in coming and dying on the cross. Help us, Lord, to show the kind of sacrificial love that Moses' mother showed to him, that Moses' sister showed to him. Lord, help us to have the kind of boldness that Moses' sister had, Lord, to speak up in the name of Jesus, to share your gospel, your good news. Lord, give us the courage that is necessary. Lord, I, I pray selfishly, God, give me the courage that is necessary not to fall to the temptation of looking only at self-preservation. But Father, help me to love people with a sacrificial love like you have loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. God, help us as a church to show that same kind of sacrificial love and not fall victim to the temptation of being caught up with, captivated by, obsessed with our own preservation. Let us not fall victim to fear, but Lord, let us be strengthened by faith. We love you, Father. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to you, our Father in heaven. Amen.